worst. The worst is that no notice event that you don't know is going to happen and suddenly hundreds of people are knocking on your door at your hospital. Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner. And that was Jody Keller of COTS Ohio, a healthcare coalition for trauma, emergency services, and emergency preparedness and response here in Ohio. While we tend to talk on this show about the slow-moving, persistent, and in many ways predictable failures in public health and healthcare, today we address more sudden, large-scale emergency situations and how to prepare for them. It's COTS's job in many ways to imagine and prepare for the unimaginable. I talk with Jody and her colleague Sherry Kovach about COTS and how they keep a wide range of organizations and individuals focused and ready to respond to traumatic events that we hope won't happen, but we know sometimes do. As always, we'll be providing a bunch of links and show notes so you can read up on COTS and their work. Those will be at prognosisohio.com. And while you're there, it would mean a lot to us if you could please consider helping us out by throwing us a few bucks on Patreon or even sharing episodes on social media. We've got big plans for the show later this year, but we really need your help to keep it moving and evolving. Okay, now to my conversation with Sherry Kovach and Jody Keller of COTS Ohio. So I, I want to start with a, a blunt and I admit slightly loaded question, which is, is Ohio prepared for most of the kind of mass casualty situations, traumatic situations that we can envision? And I'm asking that purposefully because there may be things we can't envision that we need to plan for. But what's your overall assessment of what our state of preparation is? So I would say we're always preparing for whatever the next bad thing is. You know, we do all hazards approach. So we look at what could possibly be the next bad thing that happens. We have plans in place for a multitude of different events. And we're always reevaluating that and looking at what do we need to do better than we did it the last time. So this is a kind of grisly exercise in a way you get to sit in a room and imagine like, What's the worst thing that could happen? What are we missing? Yep. You know, and, and and of course you're probably learning from the past as well as you yes, go. Yes, yes. So yeah. so I expected you to say, yeah, we're basically prepared. <laughs> uh, and, and I know that that's this is always a moving target, right? But yes. but I'm sure there are things that keep you up at night as well. Resources you'd like to have, things you know like that. So, so tell me a little bit more about the process of how you do this preparation. So we do sit and think, what's the worst thing that could happen in this scenario? And we we really stress when we do our exercises, we try to stress the hospitals and the rest of our healthcare coalition to the point where they're going to break. You know, it doesn't do us any good to bring five fake patients or mock patients into the ER and, and say, okay, go at it. We need 500 coming to the ER to stress the system all the way from the emergency department through the OR, through the ICU and the med surge. And we just, we plan for the worst, literally plan for the worst. So what is the worst? The worst. What, what are some of the worst? Like, <laughs> what are some of these things? I don't want to scare listeners, but they know what they're getting into here. I mean, this is the the hard work we need to do, and we, we can't afford to pretend like these things aren't possibilities. The worst is that no notice event that you don't know is going to happen, and suddenly hundreds of people are knocking on your door at your hospital. And, you know, your, your ER is already full. It may be at 3 o'clock in the morning on, you know, Wednesday night. And staffing isn't where it 
could be or where you'd want it to be to handle those extra 500 patients that are knocking on your door. Right. And for example, uh, the Dayton nightclub shooting, uh, Columbine, Orlando, Las Vegas, things like that. I'm wondering, I mean, also the possibility of two things happening at once would be a real nightmare situation, probably. Yes. And we've practiced that, too, where we've had a coordinated attack in the city of Columbus where multiple things were going on at multiple venues um, and then coordinating that EMS response. And so we're not overwhelming one hospital and we're, you know, load balancing those patients to multiple hospitals. And lessons we learned out of that one was we needed to make sure we had a system where all the different law enforcements could speak to each other and also speak to their fire and EMS response and then speak to the hospital. So, so we do learn from each one. This is something that we've been talking about in the state uh, within just healthcare generally for a long time now. Governor Kasich made it a big part of his administration was just coordination. Mm -hmm. And it seems like we have all these amazing resources all around the Mm -hmm. state, but we often have no idea how to get people to play nice with one another, how to actually line them up and figure out how we triage and and move resources around. So these ongoing conversations you're having about preparation, is it making sure that those relationships are in place ahead of time? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So COTS coordinates two healthcare coalitions, the Central Region Coalition, which is 15 counties in Central Ohio, and then we also coordinate the Southeast, Southeast Central Ohio Coalition. So we're looking at more than just hospitals, core members, hospitals, um, EMS, EMA, and public health. But then we also bring in long-term care, dialysis centers, anybody that could have anything to do with a healthcare response as part of our healthcare coalition. So we have hundreds of members, and we're trying to just build that coalition so that we're ready to respond to the next pandemic. You know, having that coalition already in place really helped us. So, you know, what about resources? Uh, This stuff is expensive, and I'm going to come back to this in a moment, but how do you ensure that you have the resources you need? What are some of the sort of like financial streams that allow us to actually prepare for events? And, and keeping in mind that I notice, I mean, you're you're working not just with public events, but there's a mixture of public and private events, mm-hmm. you know, Buckeyes games or marathons, and there's mm-hmm. all these different kinds of partners. How do you organize and coordinate the funding to make sure that you can be prepared? So the funding comes from ASPR, from the federal government, from ASPR, through the Ohio Department of Health to us. And then we do a budget every year, and funding does go down to the hospitals, and we um, also fund our local health care coalitions in each county to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we purchase regional caches of PPE, ventilators, suction machines, all sorts of things that we have regionally cashed to be able to move out to our hospitals and other sources. And the state of Ohio gives funding to eight different regions, and three of them fall under the the COTS umbrella. So we're in budget season, probably an elephant in the room here. So are you involved in conversations? We've been talking about this a lot on this show. Absolutely. Our budget is set by ODH. We don't get to negotiate for more, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) But they know you'd like it. Right. Sure, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. So you're engaged with both uh, planned events and the eventuality of these events that we can't foresee, and it's kind of your job to mm-hmm. try to foresee them and plan for them. Um, I've been thinking a lot, and we've talked on this show about the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. And, you know, 
it's been pointed out by Norfolk Southern and others that nobody died from that, at least from the initial explosion. But when you heard that that happened, I mean, how did somebody, you know, the people who do the kind of work you do, how did you process that moment? What kinds of questions did you have at the outset? I know that's not in your mm-hmm. area, I'm guessing. Correct. Or, or, right. Yeah. But like, as an example, since it's in the news, what are some of the things that we learn from something like that? And I'm keeping in mind that we, we have trains coming through central Ohio all over the place, mm-hmm. right? Where I live in Grandview, for example. So for me, it was early notification, you know, did someone notify the me in that area that this bad thing had happened? And we've been built into so many notification processes throughout our region that I'm hoping we would have been notified very early so that we could have then alerted our hospitals, um, making sure the hospitals were ready to do decon if they needed to or to take care of any trauma patients that they might have had. So as we talked about earlier, and you know, I work at a medical school and we we have our disaster day drill, which we were talking about before we started recording today. And the students get a lot out of it because they're able to just sort of envision what this would be like. Mm -hmm. And there's emergency personnel around and med flight comes in and all these kinds of things. Um, I want to get a little bit granular. What kind of training specifically, you know, do do you engage in, and we talked about no notice events. Do you do no notice training? Is that a thing we can do where we all of a sudden, a situation arises and you try to mobilize people? Yes, absolutely. Um, we've just rolled out new triage training. We're going to a whole new mass casualty triage process in our region. Um, so that just rolled out last month. And we're in the process of getting EMS and the hospital EDs on board with that new training. We also do monthly communication drills. um, And every quarter, it's a no-notice drill where our hospitals will go in and they'll update their bed availability and we'll do situation reports. But in that no-notice drill, we're giving them about 20 minutes to get onto a web um, conference call. And they have to report out based on the scenario we give them what the impact is on their hospital. And those have proven to be just extremely beneficial, that they get really creative with what the impact is for this hazmat exercise, or we did one just prior to the Arnold that was a terrorist event at the Arnold, and the hospitals were receiving patients, and our hospitals in Southern Ohio were like, well, we're not getting anybody, but we could take patients from Columbus if we needed to. Yeah. You folks are literally catastrophizers, right? I mean, yeah. It's like so. So I, I want to ask because you know, increasingly we're thinking about how to take care of the workforce and healthcare. Mm-hmm. How do you all take care of yourself? Do you do internal sort of trauma processing since you think about trauma all the time? I mean, <laughs> how, no, how but you... we should. We probably should. <laughs> we try and take some mental health uh, group outings and fun days few different times a year. Yeah. Yeah. It would seem to be really important <laughs> because, you know, you can only do so much of this all the time, right? <laughs> you mentioned some real big money private uh, events, right? Mm-hmm. So, so just as a political scientist and also as a citizen, I guess I want to ask the question, when you think about funding these things and all the money, for example, NCAA or the Buckeyes or whatever, you know, this is a public-private partnership, but ultimately there's a cash flow that's coming through there. So, how, again, to come back to the money piece, I mean, is is this the public's responsibility to kind of do this planning for the kind of private sector, or do you do it together? And and is this just kind of the, the nature of things? Because when you have a hundred thousand people 
in, in an area or half a million people in an area, mm-hmm. it becomes a public question. It does. And we do it together, wouldn't you say? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I want to stick on this, though, for, for a minute, the, the money piece, because I, I remember a couple of years ago uh, after the Ebola situation in, in, in Ohio, and I was talking to a few clinical folks, and they were frustrated because they felt that they were going out and doing all this, uh, you know, buying special suits and, you know, the kind of stuff that you need in the eventuality that this became a big mm-hmm. deal. But their take on it was, we're being forced to buy all this stuff that's going to expire in a year or two. This is a huge budget line for us. And the more worrisome thing at that time was the shifting of budget mm-hmm. lines. What are they not paying for on the side of prevention and things mm-hmm. like that? So how do you, I mean, this stuff is expensive. Mm-hmm. Preparing is really expensive. How, how do you think about the like the, the macro level budget question of, we want you to invest in all of this stuff for things that may never happen when a lot of people are trying to do their day-to-day work. So there was a, that's a very good question because back in the early 2000s after Katrina and 9-11, when we, the funding started to come to the state, we bought in everything and everything, medications. Yes. And next thing you know, they were expiring and being extended and extending. So, so we've learned from that. Um, what did we learn through COVID with the ventilators? Yeah, so we bought ventilators 15 years ago that never left the shelf. Yeah. And then when we needed them during COVID, I mean, they were just so old. So the state bought new ventilators and we, we had to replace them. That that budgeting for stuff is really hard because you need stuff. Yeah. And then you mm-hmm. learn during COVID that it's not there to buy. Yeah. Um, we're still having supply shortages that we're facing every day. It's something new. But it's hard to stockpile things that are going to expire. We've really tried to implement rotation projects so that things get moved out. But some stuff, like hazmat suits, are just going to sit there until you need them. Right. And I know there's a whole kind of political mm-hmm. dimension to oh, expiration yeah. itself. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I talk with students about, you know, when drugs uh, expire and there's a, a, a conversation going on there of like, really? Do we really need, is that really, are these the, are these companies manipulating this uh-huh. to keep moving product or are we actually talking about yeah. something that puts us in that position? But I'm guessing, I mean, you work with public entities like the state, I mean, compliance is really important. So you kind of, your hands are a little bit tied yeah. there. We've kind of shifted the purchasing of things though, more to staff and experiences and training over stuff. So what does that mean though? So so when, when you're shifting toward the personnel, I mean, you still need stuff, right? And then during COVID, yeah. the PPE discussion, especially early on, was was a really big one. Well, and and quite frankly, our budget just isn't big enough to buy enough stuff right. to cover everybody. Yeah. I mean, we couldn't even cover all of our hospitals. And who could have predicted we were going to go two and a half years? But we couldn't cover everybody in our coalition. So it's, you know, then you have to do an allocation plan and figure out how you're going to try to make this equitable for everybody. So COTS occupies one of these kind of strange places where when things go right, people never hear about you, right? I mean, it, if, if we do everything, and public health itself is like this a <laughs> yes, little bit, right? Yeah. So, you know, we're, that's why on the show we try to lift public health up and say, look, they're doing a lot of things, you know, keeping your water safe, yes. uh, you know, whatever it might mm-hmm. be, They, you know, you won't appreciate it until something goes wrong. So let's invest and, and get this right. So, But h- how do you stay on people's radar screen without scaring them constantly. I mean, in a way, being concerned about things is the thing that allows you all to get the resources and the attention and to keep it all moving. 
So you're probably balancing a little bit of just kind of staying in the background, but also like on this show, for example, coming out and saying, we're actually here. This is what we're doing. And I want to ask you, what's something that you do that people would kind of be surprised about? I mean, something that, you know, happens behind the scenes that maybe the public doesn't really appreciate fully or no? So probably one good example would be Red, White, and Boom. Everybody knows and loves that in Columbus. Two, 300,000 people come here every year. So Jody starts planning May, probably, mm-hmm, May. maybe even earlier starts planning. And we have uh, law enforcement, uh, FBI, the terrorist task force, joint terrorist task force, um, EMS, public health hospitals, all together talking about how to secure the event, how to, we have a uh, emergency operations center set up for a couple days, like day before, day after. And one of the things that I think is very interesting is what if something bad did happen? How are EMS going to get people to the hospitals? So we have sites set up around the city where if you work for Hospital X and something bad happens, you're going to be notified via some type of alert, go over here and you'll be escorted into your place of work. So things like that to make sure that people have still have access to care. But again, it's like behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, yeah. I'm a parent, right? And like we all know that, like you know, successful parenting sometimes Mm -hmm. is that your kids don't have to worry about all the eventualities Mm -hmm. because you know things went right. Yeah. What are some events in the history of our state that we've learned from? In Ohio. And your response alone is like a good one, right? Yeah. (laughs) We're lucky. Yeah, so I mean, weather is probably one of the biggest things, you know, that get, that we get impacted on. The derecho, which took down, you know, power for days and days and days for people. And where did they go? To the hospital, because that was the beacon on the hill that had power and they could go mm-hmm. plug in their cell phone or plug in their oxygen concentrator. They didn't really need to be seen. They just wanted an electrical spot. Yeah. But that impacted hospital care. Uh, the Ohio State University, remember the gentleman probably four or five years ago, maybe even six now, the stabbing mm-hmm. that happened that Machete. Monday. We were able to learn some processes that we did not have in place that we do now have in place, like some ability to quickly notify certain disciplines like the trauma surgeons because they were all calling us individually from Marietta and Genesis saying, what do you need? So now we have a, a notification process that, in, that involves them. We had an incident there where we couldn't get blood on campus because security locked campus down and rightly so. But now we have the ability to communicate that blood does need to get in, things like that. So those would be lessons that we learned that we now do, would do better on if we had the that same whole blood um, shortage that we experienced the last couple of years. You know, in the middle of COVID, then we have no blood. And our trauma centers can't operate without blood. So we pulled our tra- our blood bank people from the hospitals and the American Red Cross and Versity all together. And we had twice weekly calls during that shortage. And we developed a plan for how we were going to conserve blood. And everybody was going to be on the same page. Like everybody would be using the same plan, the same process. They were reporting their inventory daily on a spreadsheet that we had, and then hospitals could share it. So mm-hmm. Hospital A had three units of O negative that they was going to expire tomorrow, but Hospital C really could use that. So they would switch out. I mean, it was amazing. That was never done before. And it was never done before. And it was never a group that we had engaged before. And now we meet with them all the time. And and they reach out to us because they, they're like, hey, this is starting to get short again. Let's pull everybody together. 
One of the things that, that you know, has been pointed out after the initial couple of years of COVID was just that we were one of the successes. I think one of the things we've learned in, in healthcare is that we were able to find ways to get hospitals to collaborate. And hospitals are notoriously not collaborative. They're a bit competitive with one another. So that's a real role for the state or for organizations like you. So, you know, as we kind of head to the end here, uh, I mean, do you see yourself as mainly a convener of different groups and sort of like that's your main function? Are there uh, rough spots you have to work actively to kind of say, look, I know traditionally you don't all collaborate because you see each other as competitors, but we are doing something in an eventuality when we we absolutely need to let go of all of that and work together. We started this 25 years ago, and the understanding back then was your white coat has to stay at the door. You come in, and you're here for the patient, and you're here to work together. And it's just carried on. Mm -hmm. And as we've brought on, and it was a Columbus-centric, and then it was Franklin County, and then it was 15 central counties, and now we have the 21 southeast, so what, 36 of 88 counties. And that's the understanding when they get oriented into COTS, that it's a neutral forum, and we're all going to work through this together. On the preparedness side, there's no competition. They just... They just have worked together amazingly, especially yeah. during COVID. The little guys helped out the big guys, and the big guys helped out the little guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's important because there, there are a lot of, I mean, again, I, I, I teach medical students and hang out with a lot of physicians. And, like, in every sector, I mean, I'm also a professor, so, like, you know, egos are everywhere mm -hmm. around here, right? And getting them to check the white coat at the door is actually a lot harder, mm -hmm. I would think, than it sounds to a listener who may not work in those worlds. But the higher cause of like, look, this is this is like not a time for that kind of mm -hmm. work. Um, but, you know, I think you might be surprised sometimes when that stuff does linger and become an issue and you need a group like COTS to be able to just focus. Yeah. yeah. Right. Last question. So you know, I understand that COTS is pretty ahead of the curve nationally. Um um, I will just tell listeners, um, you know, one, I, I received a, a note from from Commissioner Joe Mazzola who said, "Cots is wonderful. You need to talk to Cots." And I said, "Oh, that's great." And and I do whatever Commissioner Mazzola tells me to do because he's um, a hero of mine. But uh, what do you think other municipalities and regions could learn from the work you're doing? Um, you know, as the model you're developing, I mean, are are you unique in in Ohio and Central Ohio? Commissioner Mazzola says yes. Um, <laughs> Are, are there other organizations around the country that are doing this in different ways? Like, if, if you think about scaling this nationally, where does COTS fit into the discussion? So I would say, yes, we are unique nationally in that the ability to collaborate. Uh, people have started to come around and, and do it through the COVID response. But one of the big things that I think probably I'm most proud of is Jody's been invited to speak. And you might have to correct me, Jody, but sh they've taken notice of us nationally. And you're with nine urban centers, mm -hmm. um, nine urban large urban city healthcare coalitions, okay. if you will. And they're meeting now pretty regularly, monthly, every other month. And they're talking about what went well in their organization becoming models for the rest of the United States. So COTS is, is, is leading the way on yes. this, and, and that's a big responsibility, too. Mm -hmm. yes. In health and in healthcare and emergency preparedness, I mean, it's just so frustrating that we have so much talent in Ohio and can't seem to move the needle on some of the key metrics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the governor talks about this. We're trying to figure the, these pieces out. So we always love on this show spotlighting some of the, the leaders in doing this work. I want to give you a, a chance just to sort of celebrate the work you do for a minute. What, what's, what's next 
uh, what, what kinds of things are, are going to really occupy you over the next year? I know next year we have the eclipse in 20, yes, <laughs> 2024. Jody's big pet project right now. A lot of people moving <laughs> to that part of Ohio. So uh, what are some of the things you have coming up? So we've already been working on the eclipse for over a year, um, really pushing for healthcare to be ready for that. It's going to impact in the middle of the day, which could be change of shift. Um, traffic is just going to be a nightmare. And getting people from their viewing location or from their house to the hospital um, is going to be a big challenge. Is there precedent for this? I know I don't want to make this an entire mm-hmm. deep dive into the eclipse, but it's fascinating. We should probably just do a whole episode yes. on it. When it all of a sudden gets dark and people aren't maybe expecting it to, uh, have we learned from the past? I mean, you're deep in this. So what happened? Yeah, so um, we've been reviewing lots of after actions from the the previous um, eclipses in Oregon or in Kentucky in 2017. And, you know, there's there's some mental health concerns for those that when it does get dark and they don't know that it's going to get dark because they haven't really been prepared for that. Um, There'll be a lot of public information and education that'll be going out over the next several months. We're exercising for it at the state level and getting ready and trying to really anticipate anything that we could possibly do for it. And anything else, I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, innovations or or the work that you're going to be doing? I mean, does it just kind of continue and you continue to assess and build? Constantly. It does. And and really for us, probably one of the the big things is making sure people still remain engaged. We've been telling them for years, it's not if, it's when. And we lived through through two and a half years of when. And so we want to make sure they still remain engaged even after things settle down and that we can still certainly ensure funding. So on our show notes, as we always do, we're going to be giving a lot of links so people can follow up and, you know, look at some of the videos and the resources that are on your website. And and that I really encourage them to do this because this is one of those episodes where sometimes we're calling attention to things that happen, but we're also asking people to maybe do a little bit of preparing or a little bit of that mental exercising that's required here. So Jody, Sherry, thanks so much for the work you do with COTS and for taking some time to chat. Thanks for having us. This episode was produced by me, Dan Skinner. I received editorial and production support from Angela Lynn. Mike Foley, curator of the WCB podcast experience, worked the recording equipment at the WCB studios. Special shout out to Destiny Davis at the Columbus Medical Association for helping to arrange the interview. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss our next episode with the good people from the Appalachian Children Coalition about challenges in addressing behavioral health needs in Appalachian, Ohio. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCB Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. As always, be in touch if you have ideas for guests as well as topics or ways we can improve the show. We love hearing from you. Thanks for listening.